1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Tuesday, February 2nd. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and guess what? Finally, finally, we've been reunited, and it feels so good. We have John (laughs) Zipper of the Commonwealth Club here with us today. woo
3: Hey, Michelle. Nice to be back.
1: Oh, my gosh. We have missed you so.
3: Well, you've been really busy, I know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, both professionally and personally, as I mentioned to you. But, um... But yeah, I've made, all, I made up all kinds of rumors about why you were gone. Uh-oh. So, uh, <laughs> um, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club hosts our week-to-week political roundtable talk on Fridays at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, right here on the Michelle Miao Show. And so I think it's appropriate now that you're here. I mean, last night, the Iowa caucus, uh, big deal. It was such a big deal. What are your thoughts?
3: Big deal. Both candidates, obviously, on the Democratic side, and I, I'm, I'm just going to gloss over martin o'malley altogether he's now out of the race but uh both uh leading democratic candidates probably can feel both good and a little worried you know hillary clinton she eked out a win they're basically saying um she would have liked it to be bigger you know she wanted something resounding to to establish something because she's going into new hampshire where he's going to do a win in a landslide on the other hand Sanders can feel good both about the fact that he did well in Iowa, very nearly, you know, it's for all intents and purposes a tie, except that Iowa and New Hampshire, those are really his states, you mm-hmm. know, largely white democratic, very very liberal audiences. So they they're they're right for his audience, you know, for his message and they're his natural places you know so people can kind of look at it either way really i think both of those candidates and their 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 fans i should say <laughs>
1: <laughs> i, I um, should feel good i i'm happy about the uh, republican caucus and uh, the outcome of that i mean i who, i really who, thought who, that which, donald trump you know you was going to continue to rise and rise and rise in popularity um and not not that like i think Ted Cruz <laughs> is someone to, I mean, I mean, that's even scarier, the idea of Ted Cruz um, being president of 2016, but, you know.
3: But you feel good about this. I do.
1: <laughs> I think that someone going up against Ted Cruz, whether Bernie or Hillary, I mean, I think we have a chance. It
3: does deflate a little bit, the, the Trump hype.
1: Yes. And
3: Jeb Bush was, what was he, like 20th out of 17 candidates or something? Right. So <laughs> right. I'm not sure what he's doing today.
1: Well, today we have a great show for you. Speaking of politics, let's bring it home. Let's bring it home to San Francisco politics, which is always fun to talk about. <laughs> uh, let's get our show started. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. So San Francisco, I think it's fun to talk about San Francisco and it being quirky. Um, it being quirky used to be a good thing, though, but now, you know, when rich people are being quirky and taking over the city, uh, I don't think it has the same feel to it. So this week is filled with Super Bowl activities leading up to the actual Super Bowl, and then there will be more activities even after the Super Bowl. How is this impacting the city? How has the city changed overall with partnerships like this? Our guest today is Tim Redman from 48 Hills, which is San Francisco's progressive news source. And he's also host of the Tim and Tom Show. And that's Tom, as in former Assemblymember Tom Amiano. Let's welcome Tim to the program. Tim, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Um, I, have no where, I have no idea where to start because <laughs> there's so much that I want to talk to you about. But since I brought up the Super Bowl, uh, let's start with that. You know, what's been surprising is that, uh, you know, we talk about the big uh, traffic and, and, and all that that's going to happen because of the Super Bowl. And I, I've been feeling it this morning. But most importantly, we've seen the the push of the homeless um, in, in in many ways and even protests against it. Let's talk about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, the mayor said early on that homeless people would simply have to leave downtown for the Super Bowl, which means, of course, that homeless people are going to wind up out in other neighborhoods, because the city, there's, you know, there's one shelter bed for every five or six homeless people. There's a tremendous lack of affordable, long-term housing. So what are 8,000 homeless people going to do? Well, the thousands of them who were somewhere around downtown uh, have been... Um, pushed out and are now out in the neighborhoods. There are big homeless camps, for example, on Division Street, and we're starting to see more homeless people in other neighborhoods. Uh, Because, I mean, you can move people around. You can't just magically make the homeless problem disappear. And the mayor's, you know, I, I know what's going on here. We all know what's going on. The mayor wants San Francisco's shiniest, fanciest, cleanest, best face on the TV Stations when the you know when the the camera zoom in on the Super Bowl city it, it, they want San Francisco to look clean and they don't want those pesky homeless people to mar the image of this beautiful city, but it's not going to work because there's been already protests and tomorrow afternoon a large number of people are going to gather on the edge of Super Bowl city and set up a uh, Super Bowl homeless camp and. The police will be there, and hopefully everything will be peaceful, but so will the national news cameras. And the idea that we can somehow pretend that we don't have a serious housing and homelessness problem in San Francisco is just kind of crazy because it's not going to work.
1: Even, what's even more crazy, if we can pull this back into context for those who don't live in San Francisco, is the, uh, the, the non-contract in itself. If we could talk about the fact that, I mean, it, it almost seemed like I read somewhere as if the city officials had made this partnership with the NFL or the host committee uh, on a bar napkin or something like that. I mean, you know, if we could give some information, some background as to this is the same, what it seems like the same practices in supporting big, big corporate dollars coming into the city without addressing issues or social issues like homelessness. um, I don't know if you could speak to that, but I know that there are supervisors who at the very last minute were scrambling to get some kickback. Uh, dollars from the NFL because the city of San Francisco is picking up the the cost. Is that true?
2: Yeah, the city's picking up the cost, and you're right. You got the earlier point right too. It's it's kind of hard to figure out, and this is this is a big deal. There's lots of money involved. We agreed to basically shut down all of Market Street below, you know, um, uh, you know, the lower end of Market Street down by the Mercadero has all been completely shut off. We've given the NFL an awful lot, including. More than $5 million worth of police, security services, cleanup, right? A lot of money is involved here. And the odd thing is it's hard to figure out who actually negotiated this deal and where it's written down. I mean, everyone has been asking this. The press has been asking it. At uh, um, Last week, uh, newly elected Supervisor Aaron Peskin asked the mayor, who negotiated this deal? And the mayor couldn't answer. Right? We don't, we don't, we don't even know. All that we know is, as you say, I don't even think they wrote it on the bar napkin. I think they just sat down over cocktails and and, and you know threw a few ideas around and then shook hands. I don't even know that there is anything in writing because we can't find it. It's it's really kind of crazy. It's as if we gave the NFL a blank check and we let the host committee. And the host committee, by the way, is not elected officials. It's not people. I didn't vote for the host committee, did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't vote for you. So we don't even know who half the host committee members are. And it's as if we kind of gave them the city and said, okay, you guys in the NFL, work it out. You can have anything you want, including $5 million in taxpayer money. Now, the mayor will say that when this is all said and done, so much money will be spent in San Francisco that we'll come out ahead. Maybe so, but even, even then, why are we giving the NFL 5 million dollars. This is a this is a 10 billion dollar operation made up of some of the richest people in the entire world who own the teams, who as we know from the movie Concussion have routinely allowed their employees to be Badly battered and abused, and and many of them become very very sick and disabled from playing this game, uh, and you know allowed it to happen even though they knew it was going on. Why are we giving them any money? That's the question. <laughs> why are we giving them five million dollars? And 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 why? You know, normally when you negotiate a big deal like this, you have the attorneys involved and you have a, a public process, and and it's as if that never
3: happened. Actually, it didn't ever happen. Um... Uh, Melissa Kane from CBSSF was on my week-to-week program a couple I don't know last week and she was talking about this how You're right. There is no contract because there there wasn't you you don't do a contract with something like this You're you're saying you're gonna hold this thing obviously the city then comes up with its plan and uh, I hope I get this right. This was not at the top of my head But I mean it was something like the only thing thing if you will that exists was like a memo or an email or something but Between, I think it was the NFL and the city or something, saying this is what you would need to do. Now, when you talk about giving the NFL $5 million, that's for the police coverage and stuff like that. We're not giving them any money, right?
2: No, no, we're not giving them cash, but basically we are paying their expenses. And the city of Santa Clara did a little better job negotiating. The NFL is paying their expenses, the, the money that the city of Santa Clara has to put up for police and traffic control and all that. They're getting reimbursed for that.
3: Yeah, because almost nothing's happening down there, and there's nothing down there. It's like in the middle of a desert.
2: It, it, yeah, but you know what? They're still going to have an awful lot of money they're going to have to spend on police, security, traffic control, that sort of thing. It's not as if there's a lot of events there, but on the day of the game, you've got to get, you know, 60,000 people... Into that stadium, and the security is going to be very, very high. So Santa Clara is running up a few million dollars in costs, also, but they negotiated a deal to get reimbursed. Mm-hmm. We didn't. We're just, you know, we're not giving them that cash, but we're effectively giving them five million dollars worth of services.
3: Right. But the, argue, the argument is, we're going to get the windfall more so than than Santa Clara will, oh. because people are going to be staying in our hotels here. Oh, people are spending absolutely. the week. You know, let, let, let's talk but, a bit about that security, though. I mean, because I've noticed just coming out of the the powell street bart station yesterday there were obviously police officers and dogs and security and one of the patches on the the, or the patch identifying one of the officers he was from la so you know they've been bringing in folks this is such a huge security thing um does yeah, that I bother actually, you does that make you feel I, secure what how do you, what's your I reaction was down
2: there you know it was funny i was down there yesterday just to check it out to super bowl city and i ran into a um Federal Protective Service guy, a federal agent with a dog and we were chatting and he's from Cheyenne, Wyoming. Huh. And they brought him oh and his dog in from, they brought him and his dog in from Cheyenne, Wyoming. There were police officers on every corner. Um, yesterday, uh, granted, it's a weekday, it was a weekday afternoon. I think there were more police than there were visitors to Super Bowl City. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and there's checkpoints and there's security and I understand. I mean, we are in an era when people have to worry about what happens in large events like this. Um, you know, I also, I think part of it is, and, you know, there's heavily armed guys with assault rifles standing on every corner watching things. There are people wandering around with dogs, sniffing for bombs and explosives. Um, I think part of it is you've got to do that when you have an event like this, and it's expensive.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: and it's, And we are, we, the taxpayers, are paying for this. I don't think that the United States government, which sent... Uh, You know, federal agents with their dogs from Cheyenne, Wyoming. I don't think the NFL is reimbursing the United States government either. But the second question is, and I've noticed this, is the police are also there to make sure that there aren't a lot of unruly protesters. In fact, when there were people marching down Market Street um, protesting the killing of Mario Woods, the police insisted that if they wanted to go towards Super Bowl City, they had to walk through a corridor with riot cops on both sides. (laughs) Um, Just, I don't know, you know, so they wouldn't, get on the sidewalk so they wouldn't be in the street, whatever. So that's part of what's going on, too, is they're very, very alert to the idea that there may be political protests. And there will be. This is San Francisco.
1: Absolutely. Michelle Miel with John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club. And our guest today is Tim Redman from 48 Hills, which is San Francisco's progressive news source. And he's also the host of the Tom and Tim show uh, with former Assembly Member Tom Amiano. And we're having a discussion about San Francisco. Woo! But, you know, San Francisco politics <laughs> and the Super Bowl. Um you know Tim uh, we're about to go on a break and so I think it's a good spot for us to turn our attention in in kind of what w- the, the political climate here in San Francisco has changed uh, in in even the last 5 years but mainly you know while Ed Lee has been mayor um talk a little bit about Ed Lee and his leadership within the city and kind of how his leadership has impacted the liberal politics, especially?
2: Well, the thing that Ed Lee has done that has affected the city most of all is he has done everything in his power to attract tech firms to San Francisco, starting with the what we call the Twitter tax break, the mid-market payroll tax break, which, by the way, I've spoken to many of the firms that moved in there. They didn't need the tax break. <laughs> so aside from that, the idea of... Um, going out and doing everything you can to make this city friendly to tech firms has, in fact, been effective. And he has attracted a lot of high-paying tech jobs to San Francisco. But the crazy thing about this, and all over the country, actually all over the world, urban planners are looking at San Francisco. And I've spoken to a lot of them, and they're shaking their heads saying, this is the worst urban planning they've ever seen. You are attracting 30,000, 40,000 new high-paid employees to town, and you haven't built any place for them to live. And therefore... Therefore, because of that, we are seeing long-term San Francisco residents being forced out because, you know, the, the, the city does not have the ability to protect its long-term residents. The, the state has not given us that ability. So people are being forced out in huge numbers. Large numbers of San Franciscans are being forced not only over to Oakland and across the bay, but to Vacaville, to Stockton, to to places way, way further out. So that's been a wholesale transformation. And, you know, the, the housing crisis, of course, has two sides. We only talk about one side. We talk about the supply side. We talk about, you know, we haven't built enough housing. But there's the demand side, too. And what drives professional planners crazy is the idea that you could create that level of demand, attract that number of new employees, without even thinking, it appears, about where they're all going to live. You know, plus, all right, you know, then we've got, you know, Cupertino and Mountain View building all these giant tech campuses, and then the mayor encouraging the employees from those tech campuses to live here by facilitating special private charter buses to bring them to work. So you've got a perfect storm. And, and now, after that's all happened, the mayor is talking about, oh, we've got to build more housing.
1: <laughs> well, I, I could. I see John's face, and he's got something to add, but we're going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, we'll continue our discussion on San Francisco politics with Tim Tim Redmond. Tim, you'll stay with us, right? I will,
2: right here. Awesome.
1: The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this.
3: G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
1: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, February 2nd. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, and John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is with us. Our guest today is Tim Redman, and he's from 48 Hills. We're talking about San Francisco politics, and just right before the break, John had uh, something to add to what Tim had said.
3: Oh, just the, you know, talking about terrible housing policy and planning uh, policy in San Francisco. Um, I mean, that goes back decades, you know, we're, we're suffering now from an influx of people who are coming into a market where really terrible policy has constrained construction for so long that you're exactly right. It's trying to shovel a bunch of folks into insufficient housing. Um, I would quibble over only later did the mayor start talking about housing. I mean, he and others were talking about it earlier, but, um, he got certainly got the fire under his, his, uh, seat of his pants, if you will, when, uh, um, he said, what was it before his reelection when he suddenly realized he had to do his, what was it 30,000 units or 20,000 units by 2020? Um, but it's probably been a really long time before anyone has looked at San Francisco as an urban planning model.
2: No, that is absolutely true. And in fact, you know, there's this mythology going around that it's the progressive NIMBYs who didn't, wouldn't let housing be built in San Francisco, um, and now look at the problem that they've created. But, you know, I've been watching this since 1982. I have been going to planning commission meetings, and I have been following the politics of development in the city since 1982. And all through the 80s, I, the progressives, the people on the left, were begging the planners to make developers build housing. And it was, it was our folks, it was the progressives who were out there saying, we've got to build more housing, 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 housing. And the developers weren't interested because the return on investment was higher building office buildings. And you've got to remember, in San Francisco, we don't have real planning. We planners respond to what developers propose. And that's all driven by investment capital, by where the money gets the highest return. In the 80s and into the 90s, the highest return was on office buildings. So that's what got built. And we used to go out there and say, look, if you're going to build an office building that's going to attract 3,000 new employees, you've got to build housing for them. And the developers said no. And in fact, the city planners didn't force them to. So that's where we got this housing crisis. And now, of course, the return on investment, the money, is in very high-end luxury housing, mostly condos. So that's what's getting built.
3: And and And, it's extremely, exceedingly expensive to build in the city.
2: It's exceedingly expensive to build in the city, but yet the highest return, the money is not going into office buildings as much anymore. It's going into luxury condos because that's where you can get the return that the speculators are looking for. And it's exceedingly expensive to build in the city. Absolutely. And part of that, of course, is Again, let's look at the demand side. The more people you try to shovel into San Francisco, the more jobs that you create. And the mayor talks about creating jobs, and it's absolutely true that a lot of jobs have been created in the city. I would argue that at least half of those jobs, probably more, were not created for people who lived in the city five years ago when he talked about creating jobs. They're jobs for people who move here to take those jobs. And in fact, in the process, People who lived here when Mary Lee got elected are now living in Stockton, right? Because jobs were not created for unemployed existing San Franciscans, all right? So um, you put that together and you look at that side of things, right? You've got this demand people who coming into the city wanting a place to live, and the only housing that we're able to build, now of course, that's why, by the way, the price of land has gone up so much that it costs $600,000, $700,000 a unit to build housing. The only housing that's being built are units that sell for $1 million, two million, three million $2 $3 million because that's where the return on investment is. You put this together and you have, as you said earlier, a perfect storm of bad urban planning.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Tim, let's turn our attention to Airbnb. Uh, I want to bring up Airbnb just because, of it. well, we know that the city has a close relationship with, with. Uh, well, I should say the, po- the city hall or the politicians, certain politicians have a close relationship with Airbnb. But Airbnb has been in this conversation of housing and they're looked upon as bad, bad, bad for San Francisco. And and some people are confused because some people who do rent out their place say, well, Airbnb has helped me stay in, in the city. Can you help? break down why Airbnb might be bad uh, for housing yeah, here in San Francisco?
2: There is no question that there are good actors here. There are people who um, have a spare bedroom, people who go on vacation for three weeks in the summer and rent their places out to visitors on Airbnb. And I don't think anyone says there's anything wrong with that. The problem is there's a lot of bad actors and the bad actors are people who are essentially taking what would be rental housing units off the market and turning them into full-time hotel rooms there are a lot of people who are there are people for example who have used the ellis act the state law to clear out all of the tenants from their buildings, saying they're going out of the business of being a landlord and now that entire building is being rented out as Airbnb units. Right? The problem with Airbnb, and this goes for VRBO and the other people, uh, platforms that host these short-term rentals, is they are not cooperating with the city's efforts to crack down on the bad actors. We have a law in San Francisco which says you're welcome to do this. Uh, you can do it 120 days a year, um, you, but you can only rent out your primary residence. You can rent out your apartment when you're on vacation. As I say, you know, you can rent out the spare bedroom in your house. You can rent out your couch. And you can rent out an airbed in your living room. All of that is fine. What you can't do is buy another apartment or another building and use it exclusively as short-term rentals. Now, there are maybe five, 6,000 Airbnb rentals right now in San Francisco on any given night. The ones that have registered legally to do this are a few hundred. Right? The vast majority of the um, apartments being rented on Airbnb are, at this moment, today, right now, illegal. What can the
3: city do? What, what, what would your prescription be?
2: What there's do... a really easy way to fix it. And you don't have to change the number of nights. You don't have to, all you have to do is one thing. You have to say that it's illegal for Airbnb or VRBO or Craigslist or any of these other platforms to list a unit that isn't registered and doesn't have a registration number. That's all you have to do. And then... The problem basically goes away, because then the the, the Airbnb knows which units it's listing. And if when you go on to Airbnb to list your unit, you have to type in, in a little box, your city registration unit, and if you don't have a city registration number, you can't list your house, the problem goes away. Now, this came up at the Board of Supervisors. It's come up a couple of times. And every time it's come up, Airbnb has lobbied intensely with the support of the mayor to shoot it down. In fact, the last time it came up, it lost six to five. After lots and lots of discussion from Airbnb's supporters about how this wasn't necessary, we're going to have a city office of short term rentals enforcement, we haven't been able to enforce the existing law. And that's an easy way to do it. All right. Now, why does Airbnb oppose that? Do the numbers. In the, the last study I, show, I saw, shows that as many as, what, 40 or 50% of the Airbnb units in San Francisco, the biggest ones, the ones that are rented most of the time and that bring in the most revenue, are in fact illegal because they're entire buildings. There are people who own multiple buildings and have multiple listings. So you, you shut those down, and the, the revenue of the short term rental companies drops dramatically. Now, they might be able to build it back up again, but it drops dramatically because you stop the bad actors. Airbnb has made a tremendous amount of money by encouraging people to break the law. That's Um, the problem. They've encouraged people to, because short-term rentals were illegal completely in San Francisco when they started this. We only retroactively legalized them about a year ago, so their entire business model was based on their hosts breaking the law. Now, if we enforce the law, they would lose money, which is why... Airbnb lobbies against it, which is why Ron Conway, who is a big investor in Airbnb, venture capitalist, and close, close friend of Mayor Ed Lee, has been pushing very hard, pushing the mayor very hard, not to require them to follow the law. And that's what makes me crazy about all this. I don't care if my neighbor is renting out his or her bedroom while, or their house while they're on vacation on Airbnb. I, I don't care if this happens I'll, 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 if there's a few people in my neighborhood doing this. What I do care about is when you, when you cannibalize the city's Rental housing stock, making housing prices and the housing crisis worse, and you're doing it by breaking the law, and the city refuses to enforce the law.
3: Are there other laws that could be enforced? Whether I mean, maybe that are state laws or something. I mean, if you're renting out your place for short-term rentals, you're running a hotel. I right. mean, are, are there hotel laws that can be yeah, enforced? There are, are, there, are there are there hoteling taxes, state and federal taxes that are not yeah. being done? So
2: Airbnb has finally agreed to pay the hotel taxes. Inclu- including on things. the illegal right. units yeah they, they pay the taxes all right. however the you don't need any other laws all you need to do now san francisco has an office of short-term rental enforcement that's supposed to enforce this they got a staff of three or four people we've got 5,000 units a night it's virtually impossible to enforce this law what are you gonna do first of all the units are not um, the, the listings don't have an address Right. So, what are you going to do? Use a geolocating system. Say, I know that one of these seven houses on this block is listed on Airbnb. I'm going to go knock on all of You there? Yes. Okay. I heard something funny on my phone. You can't do it. If you had a staff of 500, you couldn't do it. All right? It's impossible. The only way to do this is to make the hosting platforms follow the law.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And they
2: refuse to do it. It's crazy.
1: Thank you so much for that, Tim. We have a couple minutes left, and I, I got to get in my big question. I mean, we saw in this last uh, election, uh, Mayor Edley ran, uh, uh, you know. I guess you could say uncontested in some ways, but um, he only received, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, like fifty percent of the vote, which which goes to show you know his his popularity rating just uh, dramatically decreased. But if we're looking for leaders to really protect our pro- progressive and, and liberal issues and social issues, what does San Francisco need to do? And in my, in my mind, it would be we need to elect uh, you know certain people to get get there. How do we get them? And, and who's our friends in City Hall right now? Yeah, it's
2: tough because. Um, you know, there are, I mean, I know there were people who were thinking about running against Ed Lee, and they didn't, and one of the reasons is, all right, one of the reasons is we have a different kind of politics in this city these days. We've always had rich people who supported candidates, All right, There were a lot of rich people. Uh, developer uh, Walter Shorenstein, who was a, a billionaire, was a big supporter of uh, Gavin Newsom and helped him get elected. We've always had that. There's always been rich people supporting people. It's rare that you have very rich people who spend their money attacking and demonizing the enemies of the mayor. And that's what Ron Conway has done. He has spent, you know, millions of dollars of his own money on attack ads, attacking anyone who goes up against the mayor and the Airbnb agenda. So I think he scared a lot of people off. People didn't want to run against Ed Lee because they didn't want to see themselves subject to a million-dollar attack campaign, a nasty, vicious million-dollar attack campaign, because we have political bullies in this town now. So I think the good news is, um, Aaron Peskin ran against the mayor's chosen candidate in District Three, up against that kind of attack campaign, where Ron Conway and his buddies spent hundreds of thousands of dollars attacking Aaron Peskin, and he still won. And that's the most encouraging news that I've seen: that you can you can go up against these rich bullies and you can win. So that's what the progressives have to understand. We have to, you know, there are there are going to be there are six seats on the Board of Supervisors up this fall, the odd-numbered seats: one, three, five, seven, nine, eleven. And for whatever accident of fate, traditionally, those tend to be the more progressive seats. So we're going to see a lot of really important campaigns this fall to elect progressive supervisors and keep control of the board, but also to send that message that we're not afraid of the billionaire bullies and that we can use grassroots organizing and defeat them.
1: Tim, thank you so much for being here with us on the program this morning. Uh, I love your work and uh, keep it up. It's so awesome.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
1: If you'd like to follow Tim and maybe catch a show or read his articles, you can head to 48hills.org. And that's 48 as in the number 48hills.org. Don't go away and we come back. When we come back, we've got LGBT activist Mark Siegel.
0: Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on Success and Achievement Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far.
3: And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show.
1: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. It is February 2nd, Tuesday. And uh, you know what that means on Tuesdays, from here on out at least. John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club is here with us.
3: It's Wednesday Eve. <laughs>
1: I'm so excited for our next guest um, and that is because I, I I started reading his book and uh, I couldn't put it down you know even the Muni and the Bart like wh- whatever I was doing except I guess driving um, <laughs> but <laughs> I I you know for uh, you know someone a millennial like me I guess you know when you look back into history and you start looking for those heroes it's always such a its it, It means so much to know that there are people who are still here to tell the story. So our next guest is an LGBT activist, a newspaper publisher, a gay raider, a pioneer in the gay liberation movement, and just one of, like I said, the long list of heroes in the LGBTQ community. He has a new memoir out, And Then I Dance, Traveling the Road to LGBT Equality. Let's welcome Mark Siegel to the program. Mark, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, yes, I'm old, <laughs> and it's great to be old and a gay activist. <laughs> oh, you know, I think that uh, you mentioned this in your memoir about, <clears throat> excuse me, how you feel in in terms of uh, looking at the youth, uh, you know, you yourself in activating <clears throat> and being an activist, um in the 70s and the 80s, and and, and identifying as a, a queer youth, th- those were always issues that you were concerned with, which is making sure that the youth and the seniors connect. Oh, absolutely. I, I think I'm the first cradle-to-grave gay activist, because <laughs> when I was 18, I
4: helped found Gay Youth New York, which was 1969. You can do the math right there. Um, Now I'm 65, and I'm helping to solve issues pertaining to LGBT seniors, which is an area that we're just beginning to define as a community and to begin to help. So ageism in our community is something that I've always been involved with, to some extent or another. Um, And I seem to be fighting the isms in our society, whether it be racism, ageism, sexism. Um, And I think as a community, we have to do that in order to better ourselves, in order to to become a community to service the most uh, needy in our community. And some of those issues right now are uh, issues that we were looking at in 1969 and then seem to have forgotten for a while. I mean, People are surprised when I tell them back in 1969 we founded the first trans organization as part of Gay Liberation Front. It was called Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, and most people know the two people that uh, were involved with that, which is Sylvia and Marcia. Um, they were personal friends, and it was an issue that I was happy to work on. And, uh, uh, you know, people have blown out of all objectivity what we did but the point being is for two years Gay Liberation Front dealt with trans issues and then all of a sudden Gay Inc. came about and they wanted to erase that from our history Um, same thing for gay gay youth issues we were working on gay youth issues homelessness, runaways suicides Uh, and that issue disappeared you know for the longest period of time, uh, and, you know, the most interesting thing that I could tell you as a quote-unquote pioneer is that the most important time in our history were those two years from 1969 through 71 when Gay Liberation Front was the preeminent gay organization in, in, in America, and the reason for that, and most people don't even know that history at all, and the most important reason is because that organization did two important things that no one has ever done since. first thing it did, up until 1969, you have to realize that our community nationwide was only a movement of approximately 100 out people nationwide. You know that because of those marches in Philadelphia, which took place from 65 to 69, which were the preeminent marches, and all the leaders of the, the, the nation came to Philadelphia. Not one of them was over 100 people. Most likely 40, uh, from the pictures we have. So you take that. Then the Stonewall riots happened on Ju- those. Those were on July 4th every year. But in 1969, you had something called Stonewall in New York. From the ashes of Stonewall came Gay Liberation Front. Gay Liberation Front did two things. First off, we defined ourselves. Mm-hmm. We in the gay community had never tried to define ourselves as men, as women, masculinity, femininity, uh, sexism in our own community. We were defining that. We debated that each and every single week or day. And and, and that, sex- that
3: wasn't just defining it to the outside community. It was defining it to. Uh, I mean, arguing about that with yourselves. I mean, in your advocate article, you you talk about some of these very uh, intense debates you would have over. I mean, everything, I mean, you know, beards on men, I mean, everything.
4: <laughs> was, was, was that yeah. frustrating? John, was that you re- up that, John, you just brought up one of my, one of the funniest pieces in the book, which, um, you know, you know well, some of us are still alive, and we we communicate with each other. So when I was writing the book, uh, I asked around, what were some of the most interesting debates that you recall? And one of my favorite uh, was uh, one that I recalled, where one week uh, we were discussing sexism, and that was... Every single week we discussed sexism um, because we had masculine men, we had feminine men, we had fairy men, we had queer men, uh, we had lesbian separatists, uh, we had radical lesbians, <laughs> we had everyone from the entire spectrum uh, in this organization. And I don't think that's ever existed again since. But um, this one uh, discussion on sexism, uh, one of the women got really angry uh, when this guy was being very forceful and said, You have a beard! And he looked at her strangely, uh, and he said, yes, I do. Um, What's wrong with that? She says, men's beards have always stood for leadership and masculinity and prominence over women. (laughs) And then some of the women started screaming about the beards, and this went on for about an hour. The meeting (laughs) ends. The following week, some of the men who had beards shaved them and came to the meeting. Which meant the feminine men started screaming at them. (laughs) Why did
1: you capitulate? You have every right to grow a beard. You know, they're being sexist towards men. It sounds like a San Francisco Pride board meeting, actually, <laughs> and it still happens. Mark, you know, John mentioned your article um, featured on The Advocate, and uh, that's the, one of the main topics we want to discuss today, which is anti-Semitism that exists within our own LGBTQI community. I started out with your book because the book, uh, your memoir beautifully, beautifully paints you, um, you know, as as true to yourself, a gay radical, in my opinion, and always disrupting uh, what's quote-unquote normal or disrupting society, at least. Um, Can we talk about creating change and what happened there? absolutely. Yeah, if you could give us, you know, our listeners uh, some backgrounds. The National LGBTQ Task Force uh, produces this conference, uh, Creating Change. This year it was in Chicago, and it's basically, um, you know, a ton of LGBTQ activists coming together and convening for this conference, right?
4: Yes, it's, the, to my knowledge, the largest LGBT activist um, gathering uh, of the year. Um, literally, they had about 4,000 attendees, uh, and they discussed every subject you could possibly imagine. The term creating change to me means dialogue to create a change, which means you should be able to discuss every issue And they do so uh, to the umpteenth degree. For instance, every single breakout session, time period, you will have at least 21 breakout sessions. Now, this runs for a whole week. And there's about four of them per day. So this is, you know, huge. Mm-hmm. Um, but the co- controversy this year turned out when an organization by the name of Wider Bridge, which is based, in I believe, in San Francisco, uh, which is a, uh, a group that states that they want to create a better alliance between uh, Jew- Jews from America and Jews from Israel seems fine to me uh they were going to have a shabbat service religious service on a friday night and then follow that up with uh some speakers from a place called jerusalem open home jerusalem open home is sort of like a gay community center in tel aviv which has suffered lately uh some major uh gay bashing attacks including a stabbing of last year i believe um that was it that's what they were doing they so, for for whatever reason, uh, some anti-Israeli people decided that they were going, people who protest the way Israel treats Palestinians, were going to protest a wider bridge. Um, but something unfortunate happened during that demonstration. Rather than demonstrating Israelis' occupation, as they claimed, of Palestine, What happened was they started to do hate speech. And what you had were Jewish people, LGBT Jewish people, in a room where the protesters were banging on the room and trying to get into the room, and they were yelling slogans, which means the annihilation of Israel. Now, some of the people in that room had parents who were in the Holocaust. Can you, can you imagine how frightened they right. this is I'm outraged by that. Now, I am Jewish, but I am a non-religious Jewish. I'm atheist, but culturally I'm Jewish. Um, I've always supported the two-state solution. I despise the government of Bibi over in Israel because he's so right-wing, and I'm really offended by what he, what he uh, and his uh, government did to Obama. But I would not take that out on my fellow uh, sisters and brothers in the gay community. I was outraged by that. I was outraged that anyone in the LGBT community would be using slogans to annihilate any group of people.
3: And that that, that is something that kind of crops up, a, a I don't want to say often, but, but from time to time, even frequently, there is that core, frankly, on, uh, of a portion of the progressive movement that sees Israel as, you know, just so beyond the pale because of, of the occupation.
4: Let's go to that word. Um, this is an issue, by the way. I've never championed. Uh, again, I'm a two-state person uh, long before most, people, most of those people were even alive. Um, so let's go to that word Occupation. I mean if you want to discuss that who's if you're going to occupy a land that means you've taken it from another governing force well which governing force had it before israel i'll tell you the english so we're occupying english land is that what you're telling me so that statement alone right there is wrong now before the english you had it the ottomans the turks who had it before them I mean, if you go back and back and back, I mean, the point being, there's always been what are now Palestinians in that area. There have always been Jews in that area.
1: Mark, so let's let's, let's, uh, let's, the, go ahead. let's take a quick break right here, but when we come back, let's continue our discussion about anti-Semitism in our community, the LGBTQ community, and also, let's go back to your incredible memoir that I just cannot put down. So stay oh, with so us. Polite. <laughs> stay with <laughs> us, okay? The Michelle Mial Show continues right after this. Don't go away.
3: jason collins talked about gay athletes the sisters of perpetual indulgence discussed activism and good works actor and director rob reiner explained how he got hollywood behind same-sex marriage barney frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of washington and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders.
0: And now back to
3: the Michelle Miao Show.
1: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us today. And our guest, our wonderful guest, is Mark Siegel. He's on the phone. He's an LGBT activist, newspaper publisher, gay raider, just a long list of awesome titles, but also author of his new memoir, And Then I Dance, Traveling the Road to LGBT Equality. Um, Mark, in, in wrapping up our conversation of what happened at Creating Change, it, it, you know, what's what's difficult to articulate is... Um, our movement, the LGBTQ equality movement and the way that we have fought for our rights, which is inclusive of, you know, protests and speaking out and, and as you're familiar with, you know, disrupting, um, um, you know, what's normal quote unquote disrupting society. How do, how do we move forward from this and, and provide a platform?
4: Um, I think there's a way and it's to appreciate in any social, uh, justice movement, uh, not everybody is 100% correct or right. But sometimes you've got to listen to the other side. Listening is really, really, really important. And by the way, I just heard the commercial for the Commonwealth Club. It sounds like that's exactly what they do, and that's wonderful. Um, and that's a place where issues like this can be debated. But here's the reality. The reality is LGBT people in Chicago were not only protesting other LGBT people, but they were asking to harm them, not only were they doing hate speech, but what really bothered me about that was they were supporting a group of people that don't support gay rights. Now, we're talking about... Look, again, I believe in a Palestinian state, but I also am realistic to realize culturally where Palestinians are. And they're split between the West Bank and Gaza. And you have to understand, the West Bank, and I tried, as I did in that article, to get a hold of someone from the West Bank to say something positive about gays, and I couldn't do that, including calling all the way to Palestine on the fourth call. Um, Gaza? Well, Gaza, they actually say death to homosexuals. So... They're there in Chicago, banging on doors against the Jews who aren't necessarily supporting Israel, they're just wanting to have dialogue with the Jews in Israel. Mm-hmm. So they're doing that. At the same time, they're supporting a, a group of people that literally wish our people harm. Now, what I look back at the historical aspect is in 1970, gay Liberation Front marched with the Black Panthers. Right. So we know what we're talking about here. And what we did in order to do that, and up until that point, the blank Black Panthers were just like the Palestinians. They said death to homosexuals. That was one of their issues. And a very famous part of the gay rights movement in history is when we in Gay Liberation Front said, look, we're not going to join y- your uh, fight you know, to help Angela Davis out of the House of Detention unless you support gay rights. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Bobby Seale wrote a letter stating that from that point on, the Black Panthers would support gay rights. Well, the answer to this solution is very simple. You want to support Palestinians? Great, wonderful, do so. No one's arguing with that point. But make sure they support your community in return. If not, you're a self-loathing person. Because if we don't support our own community, who the hell are we?
3: So have any of these deeper discussions come out of this incident in Chicago?
4: Um, I think the, the, the column I did for The Advocate has really resonated. You take a look. Um, it's one of the most red columns they've had in the last month on, on their site. It uh, has the highest number of shares, uh, which is one way of rating their, their site. Uh, and the reality is that there's a lot of dialogue going on. I think I've brought up issues that no one has ever brought up before. I think one of the things that bothers me is that this really hasn't been discussed, and it needs to be discussed within the community. No one's saying it's wrong for people in our community to uh, demonstrate against Israel. If you want to do so, go ahead. You you know, but don't do it at the idea of supporting um, homophobes who don't want your community to live what you could do is to dialogue with that group one of the things we did in 1970 when we marched to free angela davis with the black panthers we had signs that said you know um black panthers support gay rights you know we had gay and we we can't gay rights slogans so if you want to go to a palestinian demonstration do so but make sure you have a sign which says freedom for lgbt palestinians mm-hmm
1: Mm -hmm. I truly, truly agree. Um, Mark, I want to go back to, you know, your memoir really quick in that you talk about, you know, how the how Stonewall and the Gay Liberation Front brought all kinds of different people from the LGBTQ uh, community together to fight against our common enemy, um, even if we're different. I wonder kind of what your thoughts are today, because it seems like the differences are definitely still there and growing, uh, but how we're addressing the differences and in, in the infighting, I feel, uh, have been magnified, and that obviously is because we have the internet and social media and all that stuff now. Um, you know, what would you say to that? Because uh, we still have a common enemy.
4: We do have a common enemy. And one of the things that, that's very important to me is that we, as a community, must take our interest first. Every other community does. Black Lives Matter, that's the most important issue. Everything else is secondary. Young Lords and uh, that, that community. Also, Puerto Rican rights were first. Every other issue was. Well, we as people have to be as proud of ourselves as other groups are. If we're not, we get nowhere. Put our community's agenda first. And then, go f- support whatever social justice you wish to do. But on a bright note, I've got to tell you that when I go to a conference like Creating Change, what I see there is the mixing of men, women, various races, um, and that's good. I mean that makes me feel that we're back in nineteen sixty nine when we all did try to get along um Is there infighting in our community? oh yeah <laughs> 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 that i I think that it's been since the beginning and won't go away, but you know you also see the same thing in other uh community activists uh um groups around the country you really do There's fighting within the black community the Jewish community um, the Irish community Catholic community we're no different than any other people when, one of the things that I've done recently is open a, an LGBT senior facility in, uh, in Philadelphia it's a living facility for um, affordable living uh, something that you have a problem with I understand in San Francisco
3: no don't know what you're talking <laughs> about
4: <laughs> <laughs> a shout out to Tommy Abacoli. uh <laughs> um, so we opened the center, and everybody thought since it's going to be LGBT and to, as, far, as far as we were concerned, it was going to be a diversity of LGBT people living there. Um, they would all get along, you know, harmoniously. And so after about a year, uh, they, they broke a, there was, uh, a big fight broke out amongst the residents, and people, oh, this is really pro- pop- problematic. This is problematic. And my reaction to it was, no, it's not. I mean, these are people. Take a look at any other senior living facility in the nation. There are always cliques of people. They're, you know, they're not harmonious. They they each have their own minds. No one group of people are like-minded. Right, Mark. And we we have to accept each other's diversity.
1: Absolutely. Gosh, what a great way to end the show. Mark, thank you so much for being here with us today and for contributing to the program. Um, you are so loved. Uh, I mean, it's by, by me. <laughs> I can't put down your book. I love it. So I suggest to all those tuning in today, if you don't have a copy of Mark's book, you should pick it up. It's titled And Then I Dance, Traveling, to the, Traveling the Road to LGBT Equality. Mark, thanks again.
4: My pleasure. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, John. Thanks, Mark.
1: Wow! What a show! What yeah, a show! You know, yeah. we we uh, we talked Fun. about San Francisco politics and our you know progressive beliefs, and uh, I love you know that John is um, can also chime in, but also be critical in 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 kind of the you know questions and stuff because it does pose a different lens and for. Uh, perspective, which Li- I appreciate. Liberalism
3: is nothing if you don't have people questioning.
1: Exactly, exactly. Which um, you should tune into John's show, uh, which airs here on the Michelle Meow Show, the Progressive Voices Network, every Friday at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. If you have any comments, questions, or you have thoughts, maybe on a guest who'd like to be on the show, you can head to michellemiao.com. John, I love you more than Band. anyone else. <laughs> so he'll be back with us every tuesday you could also go to commonwealthclub.org hit search michelle meow and all of our shows are on there see you tomorrow at four o'clock